Our New Testament reading this morning is from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the tenth verse. Listen to the word of the Lord. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About five thousand men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set for the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we will return to the scripture that we read a few moments ago with Blake from Luke chapter 9. If you're visiting, we have been in a study, the gospel according to Luke, since December of last year when we studied Luke during the Advent season. And we have just continued in Luke episode by episode chapter by chapter, event by event. Last week, you looked with Tyler as Jesus sent out the 12 disciples in a uh, local uh, ministry throughout Galilee. Uh, It was a practice. He was sending out the disciples to these cities Uh, He had been going to the cities. He had been going to the towns, but he sent them to experience for the first time this ministry uh, on their own with each other. They return in the passage this morning and report to Jesus the amazing things that happened uh, during uh, these trips to the different towns during their ministry to these different towns. And that is where we take up this morning as they return to give Jesus a ministry report. This passage is one of my favorite in all the Gospels. And I think in a few minutes you'll see, uh, I pray that in the next few minutes it will become very dear to you. Before we open this passage, let's pray and ask that Jesus, who is there with his disciples, who's here with us this morning, let's ask him to speak to us. Our Father, we bow before you as your priests. We come, our Father, praying 
for those around us. Father, this is the one time in the week that we can come before you, not as individual priests, but as a, a congregation, an entire congregation of priests. Our Father, we do pray this morning for Priscilla Turner. We continue to pray for her, that you would give her strength. Father, she has been strong, not only in body, but in heart and soul. Strong in faith, and we pray that would continue. That you would continue to build her up in the faith, even as her body is weakened. We thank you that her heart has grown strong in faith. Our Father, we pray in thanksgiving for Carol Garner this morning that she can be back with us. We thank you for the blessing she is to us. We thank you for the blessing that she is to her family. We pray that you would bless her daughter, Susan. Give her grace. Give her mercy. Cause her to be strong. Our Father, we pray for Larry Shelley this morning. Our Father is his body. It's so weak. We pray that you would set his eyes upon you. Set his heart upon you. We pray that at this time, that there would be a hope in his soul, a hope that is beyond his own explanation and imagination. We pray that you would speak to him as only you're able to speak to him. Bless Terry and give her strength for this day. And now we pray as we come to your word, we say with confidence, Father, that John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference in our lives. But you're able to teach us so that it will make all the difference. You're able to speak, Father, so that we are profoundly affected to the very core of our being. Father, We don't ask you to speak because we deserve it, because we're good. We're not. We don't deserve it. But we are your children, and you've told us to ask, and we will receive. So we're asking in these next few minutes, Father, speak to us. Speak to each one of us this morning where we are. Change us from the inside out. Maybe some of us for the first time. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Question. Do you have an extravagant God? Do you? What's the largest party or dinner you have ever attended? There were 5,000 men at the party in the episode before us. This means that there were seven, eight, or 9,000 people when you count the women and children. Have you ever been to a dinner 
where there was more food at the end of the meal than there was at the beginning? That happened at this dinner. And why is this so important? Why is this miracle so important? Why is it the only miracle outside of the cross and resurrection that is included in all four Gospels? Put it in context, Jesus was near the end of that great Galilean ministry. That ministry to his home province. That part of his ministry had been rich with miracles. This was on purpose. He wanted to confront his disciples with the reality of his deity. In a few days, a few days after this, he would ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then the direction of his ministry would change. This miracle was large in scope. It involved anywhere from 5,000 to 9,000 people. But why did he waste this miracle on a meal? No one was healed by this miracle. The people would be hungry again. No one was starving. They could have gone to a nearby town or to their homes and been fed. When you stand back and you look at the whole of this event, and it is an incredible event, we see the extravagance of Jesus. That word is usually not associated, extravagance, with his name. It should be. Is the grace of God not extravagant? This miracle displays the just overwhelming extravagance of God. I think Many Christians, in reality, have a small God. I think many Christians, in reality, have a chintzy God. I think many Christians have a God that is tight with time, tight with emotion, and tight with money. Many Christians are pessimists, really. They're pessimists because they have a, a tight, a parsimonious and frugal God. Now, I must say this. I'm not about to preach a health and wealth gospel. Many so-called evangelists on television have corrupted the gospel by preaching a Jesus that is like a bull market. You invest in him and he'll make you rich. That's not the gospel. The men that preach such a gospel have lost their own souls and are causing others to lose theirs. So, after that introduction, let's go watch Jesus 
play host at a dinner for thousands of people. First, as we look at this passage, I want you to see that Jesus is extravagant with himself. Look, look at verse 10. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. It had been nonstop. The disciples had been on this local mission trip, a dress rehearsal. They had been preaching all over Galilee. They returned. They were telling Jesus these great stories about what had happened. Now Jesus and the disciples wanted to get away from the crowds. It was a sort of celebration where they could enjoy each other. Their first taste of ministry had blown them away. It was time to get away alone with Jesus and just talk. Look at verse 10 again. When the, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. He took them with him and they withdrew to Bethsaida. But the crowds followed. They did not leave them alone. Look at verse 11. But the crowds learned about them and followed him. Jesus did not run farther into the country. He did not try to hide from them. What did he do? The last part of verse 11. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Jesus welcomed them. The Greek word is dekomai. It means to show hospitality. Jesus reached out to them. He embraced them. I'm glad to see you. He had wanted a respite, yet he welcomed them. Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Jesus is extravagant with himself, with his time, with his energy, with his life. How do you feel when you're at the end of a 70 or 80 hour week? How do you feel? I'll tell you how I feel. I don't want the phone to ring. I don't want to see anyone. But I'm a minister. I'm supposed to be a good guy. A nice guy. But my children, my wife, have seen me when you haven't. When there's been a series of long, long days. It's late. Maybe I have finally gotten away. The phone rings. The very sound of that phone is irritating and aggravating. I curse before I answer. There's a need. A bad need. And right at that moment, I don't feel like caring. And neither do you. I don't want you to see that. and You don't want me to see that about you. I read this passage and I'm convicted Jesus was tired. It was time to be alone with the disciples. And here came the crowds. Here came the sick looking for help. Look at verse 11. And he healed those who needed healing. He didn't whine. He didn't have a pity party. He didn't tell them to come back tomorrow. He welcomed the crowds. He wasn't putting on a facade for the moment. It was a genuine hospitality. He was... Teaching his disciples a great truth. 
ministry never ends. We've been to the towns. We've been doing the ministry out there. We've been working. And Jesus was saying to Peter, John, James, hey guys, in your love of God and your love of people, there are no off days. There's no off time. How come we want to give as little of ourselves as possible? Where did we learn that? We didn't get it from Jesus. Jesus shouts to us, be extravagant. Be extravagant with your life. Give your life extravagantly to your wife, to your husband, to your children, to your friends, to your parents. The people that Jesus brings to your life, be extravagant with them. Give your life extravagantly to the gospel, your life extravagantly to those in need. Give your life extravagantly, whatever God has called you to put your hands unto. I have a piece of prose. I don't know who wrote it. I copied it years ago. And I keep it where I will see it periodically. It goes like this. Quote, he saw people love each other. And he saw, he saw love require sacrifice and self-denial. He saw that all love made strenuous demands on the lovers. He saw love produce arguments and anguish. And he decided that it cost too much. He decided not to diminish his life with love. He saw people strive for distant and hazy goals. He saw men strive for success. He saw women strive for high, high ideals. He saw that striving was frequently mixed with disappointment. He saw that strong men fail. He saw it force people into pettiness. He saw that those who succeeded were sometimes those who had not earned success. He decided that it cost too much. He decided not to soil his life with striving. He saw people serving others. He saw people give money to the poor and helpless. He saw that the more they, the more they served, the faster the need grew. He saw that the ungrateful receivers often turn on their serving friends. He decided not to soil his life with serving. And when he died, he walked up to God and presented his life. This is my life. And God said, what life? What life? You see a tired Jesus, a Jesus wanting to get away. He tried to get away, but the crowds came. The sick came. The reality was that many of them would not have been there if he did not have the power to heal them. That's the only reason they were there, that he could do something for them. Yet, in spite of that, he gave his life extravagantly. We usually give ourselves to people who will appreciate the sacrifice. But look at the cross. Nailed there by Romans, mocked by the Pharisees, and these were the very people for whom he was giving his life. He gave his life extravagantly, even for those who did not appreciate it. You look at Jesus in this passage, and you see a Jesus who was extravagant with himself. Secondly, 
In this passage, you see a Jesus who is extravagant in his commands to us. And I love this. If you sort of slept through the first point, look at this. It's quite humorous. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, this is verse 12, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countrysides and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. That's laughable. Huge crowd, thousands. The disciples say, Jesus, hunger and food is a problem here. We're not talking about one or two hundred people. We're in a remote place. Jesus looked at Matthew and Peter, James, John, Nathaniel, Philip, and he said this. I, I wish I could have been standing there to see their faces. You feed them. You feed them. We've all had parties at our house. We know how much work and food and money it takes to feed 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 or 200 people. Jesus had just looked at his disciples and said, I want you to feed right now this afternoon 7,000 people. Okay, Jesus, I'll get right after you. That's not what was said. Jesus was saying to disciples, I'm calling you to be as extravagant as I am. I can just hear me. Jesus, we don't have to feed all these people. It's unnecessary. They can go find food. We can use the money on something else. The call of Christ, the call of Christ to you will be extravagant. Years ago, a young lady, some of you know her, a young lady named Faye Chancellor sat in my office. I'll never forget her. It was the very first time I had met Faye. She had just graduated from Vanderbilt. Her major had something to do with math. She was brilliant. She was a scholar. When I asked her plans, I expected to hear about a job in Memphis, maybe being a CPA. She was a quiet person, somewhat shy. Instead, I heard her say these exact words. God's called me to be a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. I wanted to look at her and say, yeah, sure, yes. It took several years. She became a missionary first on the west coast of Africa. When she came home from that first missionary service in West Africa, she was out there like two years. She came back to my office and was talking about her mission work there. And I said, what happened? And I'm serious now. I said, what happened to serving behind the Iron Curtain? And she looked at me and smiled and said, I flew home through Moscow. 
you know, think about that for a minute. You know where, you, how do you go from the west coast of Africa to Moscow and then to the United States? God had given her an extravagant, extravagant command and she understood it. She's been a missionary now in Poland for 25 years. But he does that with all of us. Whoever you are in this room, God calls us with that extravagant command. That's the gospel. What do you love first? Give it up. Love me first. Love Christ first. Whatever you treasure now, most in your life, give it up. Treasure, treasure Christ. Treasure Jesus. You think tithing is extravagant. There was a man that, that once said to me, he wasn't a Christian, and he said, you know, John, I don't think, I don't think I can be a Christian. I really don't. He said, I don't think I could tithe. He said, I don't think I could give up my golf game on Sunday morning. And I said, you completely misunderstand the gospel. Like I was going to tell him, you don't have to give up your golf game on Sunday morning. I said, you don't understand the gospel. He said, I said, God wants far more than you give up your golf game on Sunday morning. He wants far more than a tithe from you. That's the call of the gospel. I believe God is calling Christ Presbyterian with extravagant commands. Do you understand? When we were over there, in that, what used to be a new car showroom, when we were over in what used to be a car dealership, you understand that God gave us 20 acres here? 20 acres. This is a first phase building. What do you think God means for us to do if, if he and all... In, in all of his grace, if he's, if he's given Christ Presbyterian Church, not four acres, not ten acres, but twenty acres, what do you think he's calling us to be? What do you think he's calling us to do? What would be the response of the disciples when he said, feed these 7,000 people. We can't do that. I promise you, if God told you today what he had planned for Christ's Christian church, it would not be his words unless we responded, God, we can't do that. I promise you. His command, his calls are extravagant. A.W. Tozier you you see a book by A.W. Tozer, just buy it. It will be worth whatever you have to pay for it. He said that we grow to be like the God in whom we believe. Listen to this quote. The history of mankind will show that no people has ever risen above their view of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most telling fact about any man 
is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our middle image of God. The way we give ourselves, the way we give our wealth, the way we give to family, the way we give to the gospel, the world around us, the way we live, what does it say about our God? Does it say, does my life say, does your life say, does the life of Christ's Christian church say, we have an extravagant God? Jesus is extravagant with himself. He's extravagant with his commands. Jesus is extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. Look at verse 13. He replied, give them something. You give them something to eat. They answered. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. John and his, this is a great story, isn't it? John and his gospel tells us that there was a boy there who had brought his lunch with him. He had five small loaves and two fish. Do you understand that Jesus did not need this boy's lunch to feed these people? Jesus could have created all that food from nothing. Remember the manna that God provided for Israel in the wilderness? In fact, that event was foreshadowing what Jesus did here that day. This is that, this is that same God. Jesus could have said, let the boy have his lunch. I'm going to show you what I once did in Israel and what I can do today. He could have made light of that insignificant amount of food. Jesus was magnanimous with this boy's small gift. Look at verse 16 again. Taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. He held these five small loaves and two fish up to heaven and thanked the Father for them. Sometimes we look at the calling of heaven and we look at our feeble resources and our feeble gifts and we think these are nothing. We think God is so huge he could not care about our small Ability in our pittance. Jesus delights in what we bring him. He's extravagant in his acceptance of them. You would have thought that 50 chariots of food had just been delivered. Bring me the boy's lunch. Father, thank you for this wonderful homemade barley bread. Thank you for these two fish. Jesus is extravagant extravagant in his acceptance of what we bring. There was a man in Philadelphia. His name was Walt. He lived in North Philadelphia. He was part of a new church starting in his community, like you were at Christ Presbyterian when you started this church. Walt only had a sixth grade education, but he was assigned the responsibility to begin a Sunday school class of small boys in the church, elementary age boys. 
a sixth grade education, not much to offer. He ran into a boy playing marbles. You want to come to Sunday school? No. He was not interested. How about we play marbles to see whether you come to Sunday school? I win at your game. The boy's shooting marbles. He said, I win, and you must come to Sunday school. Walt won every one of the boy's marbles. He had to come to Sunday school. Walt rounded up 13 boys for that class. Of that class, nine were from broken homes. Today, 11 of those 13 boys are in the ministry. The boy with the marbles, the marbles was named Howard. Howard Hendricks. You've heard me speak about him. He grew up to be an international Bible teacher and Christian leader. Howard Hendricks. Nine men in the ministry. All because an uneducated man said, I'm not much. I'm not much. But all that I have is yours. We might say, I can't identify with Walt. I have an education. I have position. I have money. Does that mean Jesus won't be magnanimous with what I give? Stop right there. Think for a minute. Think for a minute. You say, I'm not like Walt. I... I I have quite a bit. Really? Really? Compared to Jesus? Compared to God? You're living in poverty. You're a pauper. So am I. Compared to God, all of us are uneducated. Compared to God, all of us are intellectually challenged. Oh, I have several millions of dollars. Really? God owns a million universes, a million galaxies. He owns a universe and he's saying, Don't try to tell Jesus you're bringing him a lot. You should be amazed that Jesus will be extravagant with his acceptance of what you do bring. Jesus is extravagant with himself. He's extravagant with his commands. He's extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. And finally, Jesus is extravagant in his provision. This is the best part. Taking the five loaves and two fishes, two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus exploded the two fish and five loaves into thousands and thousands of fish and thousands and thousands of loaves. Manna was everywhere. Quail were everywhere. Except they were fish this time. Twelve basketfuls were left over. There had to be twelve because there were twelve disciples. Each disciple carried a basketful of leftovers. 
Each disciple had his personal and his personal possession, the extravagance of Jesus. This is a wonderful picture of what God is like. Look at the universe. I used to think about this when I was in elementary school. Why did God need to make a solar system? He could have just made the earth and the moon and the sun. He didn't need a solar system. Why why did there have to be a galaxy, a Milky Way galaxy? Why did there have to be millions of galaxies that are thousands of light years apart? You look at the universe and you see the extravagance of God. Michelangelo could not simply draw stick figures. I draw stick figures. Michelangelo, he draws the top of the Sistine Chapel. Why? Because he's Michelangelo. Why did God make a universe? Because he's God. He can't do less. His artwork has to reflect his omnipotence, his omniscience, his glory. Look at the earth, the Rockies, the Himalayas, the great ice caps at the North Pole and Antarctica, the vastness of the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans, life teeming at the darkest part, the deepest part of the oceans. Look at the tropical fish and the great whales, the tiny shrimp. The earth shouts to us of the extravagance of God. Think of the different cheeses, breads, meats, vegetables. Not just some paste filled with vitamins to be squeezed out of a tube for nutrition. But thousands of different foods to be tasted by thousands of taste buds. The earth shouts to us of the extravagance of God. We read it this morning at the call of our call to worship, at the End of our call to worship from Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He was saying, soul, we must not forget that God has been extravagant with us. The abundance that God has given us in creation, that abundance cost him nothing. He could speak at fiat. He give us all the food and all the clothes and all the beauty and all the wonder. But when he saved us, when he forgave our sins, his extravagance reached absurd extremes. He gave up his own son in his extravagance. Extravagance. The incarnation was the apex of God's extravagance. The cross was the apex of God's extravagance. Now listen to me and we're done, but it's important that you hear this. In John's record of this event, in John's gospel, he noted that it took place at the time of the Passover. Now why did he do that? That's in John 6, 4. Well, a year later, a year after this event, at Passover, John remembered. John knew because he was writing about it. It had already happened. He was writing about it, looking back. The feeding of the 5,000 happened at Passover. One year later at Passover, Jesus gave them the bread and said, This is my body broken for you. 
This wine is my blood shed for you. He fed the people that day. He knew that disciples would later understand that he did that as a preview of the Lord's Supper. After this event in John 6, something else happened. Jesus began to speak of himself as the living bread, the bread of life. This miracle was a foreshadowing of the gospel, a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. Jesus told the disciples that day, you feed them, you feed them. He was looking ahead to the time that they would feed the world the living bread. That they would take Christ, the bread of heaven, to the world. God is, Jesus is extravagant in his provision. We don't have food hanging on that wall. We don't have a picture of food. We don't have a picture of the mountains and the oceans. What do we have? The cross. That's the height of the extravagance of God. In May of 2000, on a Sunday morning at 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, a great preacher, great theologian, great writer, stood in his pulpit and read a brief statement. In fact, the top of this pulpit was designed after that pulpit at 10th Presbyterian. He read a brief statement. Jim Boyce was too weak to preach that morning. He announced to the congregation that he had liver cancer. He closed his statement by talking about the goodness of God. Here's a man dying of liver cancer, reminding his congregation of the goodness and greatness and the wonder of God. He closed by reading from 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In that chapter, the whole chapter is about the extravagance of God toward His people. You see, even when you're in ICU, even when you're dying, even when we're hurting, we will always be able to speak of the extravagant way God has dealt with us, is dealing with us, and will deal with us. Twelve basketfuls of fish. Twelve basketfuls of fish and bread were left over. <laughs> Disciples had to carry away the bread and the fish that day. Each disciple had to see, eat, and carry Jesus' extravagance. Look at your life carefully. And when you do, you'll see that you carry your own basket. Even when you're dying, you carry your own basket of God's extravagance to you. Our hymn is most appropriate. How deep the Father's love for us.